We've been walking through the book of Jude over the last couple of weeks, hopefully, I think, accomplishing a few different things, one of which, this was written to some of the earliest churches that existed, some of the first century churches, the first generation of churches that existed after the apostles scattered to make disciples and and plant those churches. And so it, it offers some insight that I believe might be helpful for us. Even though it's, it's probably one of the more neglected books of the Bible, it actually has some great things as you and I are praying about what kind of DNA a baby church, a little toddler church like us ought to look like and have. Jude gives us the answer to a lot of that. It gives us a, some guidance of, of what we ought to be believing and what we ought to contend for, the things we ought to be gracious about. And, and we see that there. But the second thing is something I, I, I hope you, you also just experience in this. I'm going to read this again. We've read it the last two weeks. It takes about four and a half to five minutes to read it from beginning to end. And there's a sense of momentum because this may be just by virtue of being here this morning, the first time that you read a book of the Bible. And that is not a small thing. That's not a small thing. That is a big deal. If you and I are going to be shaped by God's word, then, then baby steps toward that are something significant. So I want to stretch your attention span. I kind of want to stretch your appetite for for reading and understanding and, and beginning, to sitting, beginning to sit under the Word of God uh, by reading that through, and you'll be able to check at least one book of the Bible off the list right here, which is a great step in the right direction. The third thing that's probably my favorite, this is Jude who writes this letter to these churches, predominantly in northern Africa and, and what is now modern-day Italy. Jude, we come to find out, is the brother of James and also the brother of Jesus. And on a personal note, if there's anyone who could ever debunk anything I say, it would be my brother. If there's anybody who could come along and say, this guy's a joke, he's making this up as he goes, don't believe him, it would be my brother. And for Jude and James, the brothers of Jesus, to go, no, this is God. This is the Son of God. I know, I know he's my brother, but I'm telling you, follow him, love him. He calls Jesus even someone whom he serves. And so when you open this, if you you enter into the room like me, a bit of a skeptic, wondering uh, what you can and can't trust about the Bible, this is a great place for you to enter into a conversation with the Bible. Because if there were ever a person who would say, no, this Jesus thing is a cult and it's crazy, it would be the brother of Jesus. And yet here's what we find. Beginning in verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, He is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. 
Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. At the very least, I hope you can pat yourself on the back. You just read an entire book of the Bible. For some of you, that's a first. For some of you who've been here three weeks in a row, that's the third time you've read an entire book of the Bible. Right? Here we are opening what what is typically a victim of benign neglect, a book that is usually ignored, not regularly memorized. I I doubt many of you, if any, have verses of this memorized. You find yourself quoting these things. But I think what you'll find is that the words in this book have a great deal of help and a great deal of relevance for us today. Jude, a servant of Jesus, introduces us to a concept. He wants to simply write an encouraging word. I wanted to write you and just celebrate how awesome it is that we have a common salvation. I wanted to, but instead I found it necessary to appeal to you to contend for the faith. There's something going on that keeps Jude from simply coming up to these people and patting them on the back and saying, you're doing great, don't change a thing. There's something going on. And so you find yourself beginning with Jude telling, he says, contend for the faith. And you'll ask, why? Why should we contend for the faith? The reason he gives us for the last two weeks is that there are false teachers. Within the context of the church, there are people who have traded the truth of God for a lie They have traded the the grace of God for whatever feels right. The word here uses sensuality. They've traded what is right and good about God and traded it for just whatever feels appropriate and right at the time. Everything we find out in the Old Testament, that the way that seems right to us actually leads to destruction. And you'll say, well, how do we know? How do we know there are false teachers? How can we identify false teachers? He says that, Apparently, the way that we can identify false teachers, people who have kind of traded the truth of God for a lie, is evident in their function, their, the way that they live out their lives. It says here that they've taken on a new prophecy, relying on, these, uh, relying on their dreams rather than the apostles' teaching. It says that they defile the flesh, probably a reference to like we see Genesis 6 here in the first half of this chapter. Probably sexual immorality, kind of whatever feels right. Let's just do whatever, do whatever we like. They reject authority. They, they do not have anyone over them that, that sees about them and, that, and kind of watches over their back. They dishonor those who God honors. They grumble. This is where it gets even more personal. How can you tell if a person is like embraced some sort of false teaching? They're grumblers. They're malcontents. They're loudmouth boasters. They're bullies. And then they show favoritism for their own advantage. And you'll say, why? Why, why is that a big deal? What, what are the effects of this? If this is what it looks like, what are the long-term effects of it? And then we find ourselves in the last section of Jude that we'll spend the majority of our time in today. 
the last section where he kind of wraps up his challenge, points out something specific about the way that their functional theology, the theology, the false teacher's functional beliefs show up in, in the way of divisions. And then lastly, a challenge and a doxology, a, a glorification of who God is to leave us. So here we go. Let's run through the last section of this chapter. You know me, I'm like a Puritan at heart. I, like, I don't think a sentence is good unless it's got lots of punctuation and lots of words, so forgive me. Here we go. This is the best way I can summarize the, the 20 to 30 verses that we just read. See, our responsibility in the presence of false teaching is to earnestly contend for the faith. Trusting to be kept from stumbling by walking in the perpetual consciousness of God's love through Christ, looking toward the day when we shall be presented before him with exceeding joy. So our responsibility, Jude seems to make for us, our our responsibility is to contend for the faith, to protect it. And the way that we do this is that we constantly draw ourselves to the to the central message of who Jesus is and what he has done. We, we keep ourselves thereby in the love of God. We, we keep ourselves perpetually in the consciousness of God's love. We keep ourselves in this, holding fast to this, contending for this, keeping this faith, this trust and reliance upon Jesus. Why do we do that? Because we know that one day, Jesus will be the one that keeps us from stumbling. He will be the one that presents us spotless and blameless in glory. This is what we do. We contend for the faith because there is a constant drive in us and around us to remove it. So if those are too many words, if that's too many concepts, boil it down to the first couple of verses of Jude, hear me clearly, hear Jude clearly, contend for the faith. Fight for your trust in Jesus. Assume that if right now your eyes have been opened to Jesus, that it is not something that will simply stay there, static, but instead it will be dynamic. And God has now invited you into the task of keeping you. So the place that we'll land here toward the end of our time is this. I want you to notice everything that Jude begins with, he ends with. Did you catch that? He, he starts by saying, like, look, you're, you're called beloved and you're kept mercy, peace, and love, or, or hope is multiplied to you. And then everything we read in the last few verses of this chapter is a callback to that. Jesus gets this? Remember, beloved, I'm, I'm saying that you're beloved, but, but you need to keep yourselves, in verse 21, in the love of God. So, so you're beloved, you're beloved. Like, he writes and says, you are loved by God. Now keep yourself in the love of God. He says, look, look, you've been shown mercy and kept by Jesus. You've been redeemed and saved by Jesus. Now save others. You are now kept, called, you've been shown mercy. Now show that mercy and demonstrate it to others. And what I want you you to see in the beginning and the end of this book is that Jude has no problem talking about the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of humans in the same sentence. Concepts that seem often to us to be contradictory or at least very difficult to grasp, he has no problem looking at Christ and seeing as completely commensurate with one another. He has no problem talking about the sovereign will of God and the responsibility of humans. We'll come back to that. So here's what I think you find, that that our responsibility now that we recognize that there's a functional false teaching around us is to earnestly contend for the faith, to, to do these things. And there's a, a list of commands that begins in verse 20. But he begins this particular last section of, of the, the book of Jude. He says uh, some of the consequences of the functional false teaching. He says you must remember, remember, why? Because we regularly forget, remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were the ones who said to you, and the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. So this is what this means for us. Of all the people in the world who are shocked by what seems to be the infinite capacity of human beings to do evil things, Christians ought not be one. Of all the people who are freaked out by crazy stuff that happens, 
of all of them, Christians ought not be included. Christians aren't the people who are freaked out. Why? Because when crazy things happen, when bad things happen, when it becomes difficult or, or tough to follow Jesus, when, when the price to follow Jesus seems too high, the last people who should be shocked are followers of Jesus. Instead, we should immediately, when the price gets high, we should immediately go, oh, this is exactly what Jesus and his apostles predicted. This is exactly what he said this would look like. Jesus says, look, the world first hated me, they're going to hate you. A student is not above his master. Thereby thinking, like, if they hung him on the cross, what do you think they're going to do to his followers? A student's not above his master. The world hated me first. They're going to hate you next. But what does he say? Freak out. Run. Hide. What does he say? Take heart. For I've overcome the world. So, so when crazy things happen, when difficult situations arise, the people who are not shocked by it are those who hear and heed Jesus' words. It doesn't shock us. So here we are. Uh, this, this is a conversation that I want to keep having um, all the way up through this election season and even afterward, um, it's a hard place to know where to stand as a Christian right now, isn't it? Uh, it's a hard place. You, you don't just look at like, presidential options at the moment and go like, yeah, that looks like Jesus. I should vote for that person. That reminds me a lot of Jesus. Like, we're, in a, we're in a weird spot, right? And, and here's what I, I sense and, and I want to encourage you with. Uh, the people who seem to be the most upset and freaked out about it are people who are Christians. And they're like, oh my goodness, this is awful. The lesser of two evils. And it's like, I don't know if you noticed this, but unless Jesus is a candidate, it's always going to be the lesser of two evils. The evil of the human heart is an affliction upon all of us. And unless Jesus comes back and runs for president, you know what we get to choose from? Someone who's evil. So here's the thing. I want you to know that. I don't want to freak you out with that. I want to encourage you with that. This is not spun out of control god's not sitting up there going like oh my goodness i didn't know this was going to happen like like this is under control god is not freaked out about it and jude wants you to know when that difficulty comes when the scoffers come you, you know what this looks like right you heard this you ever heard the scoffers recently at least in this particular context well i'm going to vote for this person because you know because because i'm a christian and, and i value this thing you heard the scoffers at this point how can you do that the scoffers come, and what are we supposed to do? Not be shocked. Remember, friends, remember, he says, the people whom I love, my beloved. Remember what Jesus said. This is going to be difficult. Following me in the days ahead is going to be a challenge. It will cost you. You will have to become comfortable with the fact that the world will not accept you. The world will not embrace you as its own because you are not worldly. You are godly. You're beloved by God, which is to say you may and probably most likely will be hated by the world. There's difficulty coming. It's going to be difficult. At the very least, though, we're not shocked. When it happens, in fact, our faith in Jesus increases. When it happens, like when the difficulty comes, like, oh, it's really hard to follow Jesus today. We ought to go, man, I'm so glad that he didn't paint this pie-in-the-sky picture of the Christian life such that now we're, we're being bombarded and, and crushed by our broken and, low and, and, and completely disrupted expectations, right? Like if Jesus had said, hey guys, follow me, it's going to be awesome, it's going to be great, it's going to be easy, it's going to uh, be, uh, be kittens and, and butterflies for the rest of your life, this would be a devastating thing, right? This would be a devastating time to live in when you face difficulty, but thank God that before Jesus left, he goes, just so you know, if you're going to follow me, you're going to want to deny yourself. You're going to take up your cross and follow me. You're going to take up the instruments of pain and torture. Public, shameful pain and torture in order to embrace the joy that I'm offering to you. Such that now, when difficulty arises, we go, this must be what he meant. This, what, this must be what he meant. This must be the difficulty that he was talking about. So what does that difficulty look like? It gives us something in verse 19. It says, these people, these infiltrators, the people who are functionally teaching a false doctrine, it says that these who cause divisions are worldly people 
and they're devoid of the Spirit. So there's a few things he lumps in together. They, they cause divisions, they are of the world, and they are not led by or under the control of or compelled by God's own Spirit. They're compelled by their own inner desires, their own sensuality, according to the beginning of this book. They're, whatever seems right to them, that's what they do. That's what they teach, and that's where they lead people. And so thereby they're devoid of the Spirit. And the result is, it says in the beginning, they cause divisions. So I, let me just stop here for a minute. I'm, I'm going to take an excursus away from this to maybe illustrate what this might look like for, for some of us. And, and some of you in this room probably have a, a closer uh, understanding of this than you, wish you, than you wish you did. And so he doesn't say that a couple, like one or two people is going to come up and say something and be silenced and then move on. He uses the word divisions. And that seems to imply throughout the, throughout the New Testament, something mentioned especially in First and Second Corinthians, a church that has little factions and cliques that emerge, little senses of loyalty outside of the loyalty of Jesus. They begin to have a, a loyalty to one another that begins to obscure the gospel. What we see here is that this division isn't just one or two people, but it's a bunch of people. And some of you in this room, have endured, or at least from a distance, either in close proximity or at a, a great distance, you've watched a church split. You've watched what he's talking about. You've watched the people, this is the people of God, right? People kept in the love of God turn against one another and destroy one another. And for those of you who are maybe new to this following Jesus, this sounds crazy, right? I'm sitting there telling you that a bunch of Christians will get mad at each other and destroy each other, and you're like, how's that possible? I know, exactly. Be grateful, you don't have that baggage, but this happens. And Christians will turn against one another. Now, now here's what we're not talking. We're not talking about just a person who is wrong, who, who maybe has sinned against one another, committed a sin against a person, or, or had made a mistake. Matthew 18, Jesus gives us a great little outline of what, that, what happens. A brother or sister goes to that one brother or sister, confesses it, lets out whatever is going on. Remember, people of Jesus, remember this, we know the truth and now the truth sets us free. So we're not afraid of truth, even if that truth is difficult. Even if the truth is, I failed. Or even if the truth is, you have made a mistake. We're not afraid of that truth because we know that ultimately whatever happens as we work toward the truth, it will set us free. It will ultimately exalt Christ and the truth of his reconciling power. We'll be reconciled to God such that now we have a ministry of reconciliation to be reconciled to others. This is what we have. So there's, a, there's an outline the New Testament gives us to confront one or maybe two people that, that run away from the gospel, have a new loyalty. But he's talking about something that happens that's especially important for us to think about. When instead of a brother or sister having a brokenness in their relationship, facing one another, they turn their back on one another and they go to someone else. You seen this? So here's the outline I'll give you. If someone ever comes to you and says, hey, so-and-so did something wrong, okay, pray with them, encourage them, hear them out, give them insight, but you have two options. You get to send them to one of two people, preferably both. You ready for this? You don't get to send them to anybody but these two people. Send them to Jesus and then send them to that person. It ought to be regular that it comes out of our mouth. Have you, have you told Jesus about this? Have you taken this to Jesus? Have you, have you laid this out there? Have you, have you measured this hurt against the cross? And then secondarily say, have you talked to that person? Like, have you, have you have you said this to this to this person? Because when that doesn't happen and we turn away from one another, then all of a sudden what you do is you, instead of reconciling and loving that person back by the gospel to you and, and to God, we simply just want to assassinate their character by collecting as many enemies as possible. The reason I point this out, the reason I draw attention to this is because we have a... a some, I have a love-hate relationship with this, but we have something in our culture that Jew didn't have, so this plays out differently. It's called social media. Social media. And I, I can just, I'd love to hear you talk me out of this. If you've got a good case against this, great. Social media is really great at connecting you to everybody and nobody. 
It gives you the illusion of being connected to lots of people while at the same time being disconnected from everyone. It feels like you've got lots of friends, but in reality, you have none. You are holding a machine. And it feels like you got lots of friends. But in reality, make sure you get this, you are relating to an inanimate object. It's an indirect form of communication, and it will always be a broken and hindered form of communication that is secondary, if not tertiary, or last in the list, to talking face-to-face with people you love. Face-to-face. And you can accomplish in one phone call what it would take in 500 text messages in like 10 minutes. Have you ever done this? And you can accomplish in like, like one face-to-face encounter what, what it would take like 100 emails and phone calls to accomplish. You ever notice that? Because 150 characters or less is a good way to assassinate someone. Or, well, I don't, I don't understand their tone. Are they, is, that, is that meant to be sarcastic? Is that, like, are they being, is that a joke? Or are they like, they hate me right now? I, and, and, you're, and here you are, you're talking to an inanimate object. And you don't really know what's going on. Oh, great. Consider, I mean, yeah, lie to yourself and, and you know, tell yourself that an emoji is, an, is a replacement for that. But that's not what human faces look like. No one sticks out their tongue and they, 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 we don't do that. So it's, it's fun. It's a great, it's, it, it has this weird way in which it connects us to a lot of people, but at the same time it disconnects us. Why is this important? I have yet to, is this just me? I have yet to see social media like reconcile any one human to another person on an individual level. You know, maybe it happens behind the scenes in the instant messenger stage. I, I could be wrong, uh, but, but the real reconciliation happens face to face. Because the best way to cause divisions is to instead of turning towards someone, you turn away. You seen this? And this gets petty. Instead of just saying to the person in front of you, in the line at Starbucks, hey, I think what you're doing is rude. What do you do? Oh my goodness, there is all this crazy loud person in front of me in the line at Starbucks. Ugh, oh my goodness. Ah. Right? You seen this? And then we'll tell everybody except the one person. And it is a great place for cowards to hide. Right? You, are, you coward. I want you to hear me clearly. You coward. You couldn't tell that person what you really thought. And so you know what you resorted to? assassinating their character to all the people that you know already agree with you. Good job. You just talk to someone and no one all at the same time. Friends, I want you to see this. This is our nature. This is a context in which we now exist. It is much easier to tell a bunch of people about the person you don't like and assassinate their character behind their back than it is to stand in front of them and speak the words of the grace of God to them contend for the faith. You got to fight for this. You got to fight for this. Divisions are easy to create, so much so that we'll create them without even knowing it. Now here's why I I point this out. Here's something I kind of want to land on before we run to the the last closing. These divisions that were emerging in the church, I want to address in future tense. Um, So as a life of a church plant, here's what's kind of built into our DNA. If at any given moment, like God's spirit takes his hand off of our church and ceases to bless our church and we cease to to be uh, exalting Christ and live for the glory of the gospel among the nations, if that ever happens to our church and and we're like sitting around going like, well, what do we do? I I guess we should shut the doors and we should quit being this thing. Here's what happens. Everything we own, whether it's a building, assets, sound equipment, you name it, we're gonna sell it all. Whoever's left, if, it's, if this is like next week or if this is like 150 years from now, in our founding documents, like whatever we have, we're gonna, it's going to be sold and it's going to be thrown into planting another church. God takes his hand off of us and we cease to exist for the sake of the glory of his name and, and the spreading of the gospel. That's fine. Everything lives, everything dies. But when that happens, our rotting carcass is going to be fertilizer for a new work of God. But here's the other thing that I think is, I, I want to interject into this, and I've, I've had some conversations even in the last week that I think shaped this. Here's what I would challenge you. If, if the division in our church ever gets amongst, you know, bigger than just like a couple people who are angry, like if there were like 30 of you in this room and you were like, I hate the pastor, or like I don't believe in where we're going, 
Here's what I want to throw out there. Instead of us turning on one another, what if that is an indicator of something bigger? If there's like 30 of you in this room and you don't like what's going on, here's what we're going to do. We're going to bless you and we're going to say, you know what you need to do? Go plant another church. Go take the gospel in another direction. If the way that false doctrine shows up is in divisions, then what better way to fight it than to show the love of God, the grace of God in that division? If there's irreconcilable difference between people in this church, here's what I'm just, I'm just throwing. This isn't, this isn't the Bible. This is just me talking. When, when Paul and Barnabas separate in the book of Acts, remember what we said? The one good thing that happens from that is the gospel goes in two separate directions. Did the argument happen because of ego and selfishness? Probably. But what they didn't do is just sit down and do nothing. They took the gospel in two separate directions. Paul goes, you know what? I'm going to take Silas and we're going to go plant churches. And you know what Barnabas does? He goes, I'm going to take Mark, the guy who failed, right? He says, I'm going to give him another chance and we're going to go encourage churches. And the gospel goes fruitfully in two separate directions. Let that be the case for us. If this becomes us, if Jude's words to us become that we are divided against one another, then let that be like someone, at any given moment, any person can like invoke an article 19. Like, look, it clearly is a place where we need to go start another church. So back here. As we contend for the faith, you beloved, it says, build yourselves up in a most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. So what we come to find here is he gives us a, a really interesting uh, couple of steps. He gives us a, a couple of things that we ought to follow. I, I think I can count eight imperatives or at least verbs, one specific imperative that is keep, but the rest of them are, are kind of verb, they're called participles that support it. And there are eight of them, all right? Build yourselves up, pray in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, wait for mercy, have mercy, save others, show mercy with fear, and hate all things stained by the flesh. So let's just gradually, just piece by piece, walk through what Jude gives us before he closes in a doxology that glorifies his brother Jesus. Starts there. These people, they cause divisions, they're worldly, they're devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, you, beloved, wants to know, I still love you. I'm not telling you this because I don't love you. I love you and you're loved by God. Building yourselves up. So the first thing is, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. When you hear me uh, probably talk to you about the word faith, we, we in the Western world have created something where faith is its own object, where you can have faith that really doesn't have an object. But we want to be explicit about this because we believe that where the gospel is assumed, it's almost always absent. Where we are not explicit about the object of our faith, it's probably because that, that explicit faith is absent. If we're not vocal about Jesus Christ, who is this and has done this, then we're probably trying to hide from saying those things. And where that is assumed, it's almost always absent. So here's what we do. We build ourselves up in faith. In what faith? In our faith in Jesus. We do whatever we can to stir one another up, to build one another up. The, the words here literally are edify, so some of you, if you've ever done construction or if you, you've been a part of construction, you work in construction, you can relate to this. Edify, from the word edifice, like to build something. This is because one of the analogies for the church that we'll see in the weeks to come uh, is not just a family, it's not just a body with parts and, and members, but instead it's also, it's also a building that God is building. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the foundation He's, he's all of this. The apostles lay the foundation and we come along and we build on top of it. And we're building this edifice. So here we are. Build yourselves up. When you look around at these people and you see brokenness, do not see that as a mark against them. Do not see that as a flaw in them that you need to, that you need to like demean or bemoan. See that as a calling from the Holy Spirit to build them up. Like if you work in construction and you're good with bricks, you probably have a keen awareness of all the poor masonry in our city. If you work with wood, you probably see the framing. If you, if, if you work, if you're a painter, you probably see the ways in which buildings are painted. However you tend to see this kind of architecture, you're probably inclined to be aware of it, sensitive to it, and really good at fixing it. So when you look around you and you go, man, these are a bunch of messed up people. Do you know how you know that so well? 
Do you know why you're so keenly aware of how messed up the people are around you? Because they remind you of you. And when you see it, you can either distance yourself from them, turn your back on them, build enemies to assassinate their character, or you can sense that that's a Holy Spirit drawing you in to encourage and to build them up. I see that this burden is heavy on you. Can I bear that with you? Hey, I see that you consistently fail in this area. Can I help you? Can 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 I walk with you in this way? Hey, I noticed, I noticed you have this weakness. Did you know that I also struggle with that same weakness? Can we team up and work through this together? Build one another up. Build up our faith. Build one another up such that when we are weak, we build one another up in our faith and trust in Jesus. We don't draw our attention when we see someone who's broken to good advice. Hey, if you did these three things, it'll fix it. But instead, we draw our attention to the fixer, the healer. The great physician, we say, look, Jesus can fix this. And hopefully we even say that because we know he's fixed it in us. Build one another up. The second thing is it says pray in the Holy Spirit. This, this phrase, in the Holy Spirit, uh, can be taken a lot of different ways. A lot of, a lot of people would say this means, that they're, they're kind of a faction that would kind of come along and say, this means praying or speaking in a spiritual language like speaking or praying in tongues. Here's what I'll say to you. That's possible. That's possible. The Bible tells us that we intercede in a way that, that, that is too deep and too powerful. But here's what this phrase is typically used to mean elsewhere in the New Testament. That is, it's under the power, under the compulsion, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. We are to pray in such a way that is controlled or guided by the Spirit. Here's a simple way to see this. I was even reminded of this this, uh, this last week. Uh, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. John uh, chapter 17, I believe. Uh, he, he stops and says, God uh, teaches these people how to pray. And the first thing he prays for, he says, glorify your son so that he may glorify you. So the initial response of his prayer is glory to God. That's how he teaches us to pray. But you also know this when we recite the Lord's Prayer, don't we? Our Father who art in heaven, what? Hallowed be your name. Where do we start? We start with glory. We start with something that glorifies God. Where do we learn that? We learn that from God's Spirit. And so there's a way to pray that draws attention and glory and honor to yourself. And there's a way to pray that draws attention and honor and glory to God. There are things that you can ask for in prayer that only satisfy you and then only meet things that you think you need that bless no one. But there's also a way to pray that's guided by the Holy Spirit. Because when God opens your eyes to it, something powerful happens. The way you pray starts to sound like him. You've heard me say this before, but when you start praying using God's language led by his spirit, an an amazing thing happens. God starts answering your prayers all the time. When you pray for the things that God wants in your life, he always gives them to you. Like if my wife comes to me and she's like, hey, I want a boyfriend. Do you know what I say every time? Like it's ever happened. That's not right. It's never happened. If it were to happen, do you know what I would say? No. No. Like, absolutely not. In fact, if you're thinking of someone, what's his name? And he's, this, this, this is where I go to jail, right? This is where this happens. <laughs> Take care of my babies. Tell them their dad was a good guy before he went to jail. Like, that, like if, you, if you ask me for something that's going to harm me and harm you and destroy us, no. So when we come to God and say, God, I want this thing, he typically has an uncanny ability to know what's good for us. And sometimes he says no. Because he knows that that thing, if he gave it to us, would probably draw us away from him anyway. But the second thing I see that my children come to me and they ask me for things as a father and they ask sometimes for things that like I, I overwhelmingly and almost probably more effusively than I should say yes. Hey, Daddy, can I sit in your lap? Yes! Always! All the time! Like, hey, Dad, would you come sit with me? Like, they, they do that. Like, would you come sit with me, Daddy? And you know when I say, yes, absolutely. And it's a funny thing that happens. When the Spirit starts to guide your prayers, you start to ask for things that God wants to give you anyway. In fact, here's what you'll find. This is what will blow your mind. When the Spirit starts to guide your prayers, you start asking for things that God has already given you. You say, God, would you comfort me? And he says, I'm glad you asked because I sent my son so that you would know that you're never alone. 
say, God, would you heal me? And he goes, I'm glad you asked. I sent my son to do just that. God, would you save me? Would you restore me? Would you give me hope and joy? And he goes, I'm so glad you asked my child. That's why I sent my son to give you just that. So this is how we start to pray. We build one another up, but we also start to pray in a way that's compelled by God. It says now that, now it gives us a threefold view of mercy. It says we're waiting for mercy. We, may, we wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And we have mercy, but then after the, the verse 23, which we'll kind of unpack, it says that we ought to show mercy. So there are three different ways that we pray for mercy, one of which is that we pray that God would help us to wait for mercy. We wait for the mercy that God will give us, but also we have mercy, and then you'll see number seven there, we show mercy. I love that, that mercy there has at least three different aspects, if not more. Our hope that, that we're, we're beloved and kept by God can be seen in the fact that we anxiously and hopefully wait for God to demonstrate his mercy on us, but we also possess that mercy. We have that mercy, and then, then we share that mercy. Did you catch how we share that mercy? It says, have mercy on who? On those who doubt. Uh, literally, those who discern, those who are skeptical, those who are weighing the options. This is important for us. This is a big deal in the life of our church. And part of this is because um, if you're a skeptic, you, you'll be able to sense this even in me. Um, this church is led by a skeptic. Um, if you struggle with doubt, I hope that you recognize that so do I. And, and, and the reason we love you and think this is a safe group of people to experience doubt is because of what Jude says here. Uh, we don't want to crush you in your doubt, but we want to encourage you in your doubt. And I want to constantly compel you out of that doubt. I want to compel you to trust that God is good. But here's what I can tell you. This is a safe group of people to doubt. This is a safe group of people to be skeptical. And here's why. A lot of people would say that, that Christians and skeptics kind of don't work together. We're, we're kind of in a place now, in fact, where it might be even difficult to categorize people as like believers and non-believers. Because there's a strange thing that no one wants to admit. The people who are non-believers, maybe atheistic in their disposition, typically have a deep fear underneath that they're wrong and there might be a spiritual reality. But those of us who have our eyes open to God, that God is real, we sometimes struggle with the opposite, don't we? You struggle like, is God real? Is he there? And so just hear the words of Jude as it encourages me to encourage you. We're going to have mercy on you and your doubts. A lot of people think that you have to water down the truth of the gospel so that you can have that kind of a conversation with people who are skeptic or skeptical or doubtful. And I would argue the opposite is true. In fact, we are going to be so compelled by the gospel. It will be the central focus of everything that we do. Why? Because there's no better way to compel a believer out of doubt than to hold up the majesty and the truth of God and to say, Jesus has done this. There's no better way to draw people out of their doubt. But there's no better way for a skeptic to get a fair hearing of what we ought to believe than to hold up the truth and majesty of Jesus as well. And we think that that actually creates a very safe and compelling place for doubters and skeptics to engage with the actual content of the gospel and for believers who doubt to engage with the content of our hope. So we show mercy. So if nothing else, I love you. If you're a doubter, I love you. If you're a doubter and, and you're skeptical, you're in a good place. You're probably surrounded by more skeptics than you care to admit. So we, we keep that hope, we protect that hope, but we also share that hope. We, we demonstrate this kind of mercy, not only just that as we receive it, we demonstrate it to those who doubt. Now here in verse 23, here's where we'll end. It says that we are to save others by snatching them out of the fire. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. There were at least half of you in this room that that makes very uncomfortable. Because up to this point, we've been talking about Jesus saving us, haven't we? And, and, and we kind of walk into an existential conversation, don't we? A conversation, mind it, has been going on for centuries. Since it's been going on for centuries, I'm not going to stand up here and pretend like I all of a sudden have the solution. However, we look at this mystery of God's salvation and we're left with a question. Am, am I a believer? Am I a Christian because, because God chose me? Or am I a Christian because I chose God? And you know what Jude says? 
Yes. Yes. God has chosen you. And for some of you in this room, I'm going to talk about this in a way that will freak you out. God has chosen you before he knew you. He sent Jesus to die for you before he even created the world. Before the foundation of the world was laid. Like the Hubble telescope is having a hard time figuring out how old this whole thing is. And that's how old God's idea to save you was. He chose you. He set his sights. Before he built anything else, he set his sights on you to save you, to elect you. And this is the beautiful, to adopt you. You were a stranger and he drew you in his family. You were once far and he has now drawn you near. And he did it. And all that's left for us to do is to praise him for it. He did it. He chose you. But here's the part that will make the rest of you uncomfortable. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Now, he's not talking about the false teachers. Because remember, for the rest of this chapter, he's told us that the false teachers are already condemned. The same way that God's people and elect are, are already redeemed, those, it says here, are already condemned. They've, they've already submitted themselves to a, a, a punishment, a judgment that's been, it's, it's been coming for a long time. So he's not talking about necessarily the false teachers. What he's talking about are the people that are may, maybe starting to get drawn away by false teachers. And what does he tell us? He says, you, you friend, does God have the sovereign power to save? Is he the only one who can save? Yeah, but what does he say to us? Hey, you save him too. And in some powerful and profound sense, Jesus has entrusted his ministry of salvation to you. He's done the heavy lifting. He's completed the task such that we know now Jesus' last words were, it's finished. It's done. Okay? So this doesn't mean that we run in here and go, well, I can go save people because I can do what Jesus did. No, not at all. But evidently, in the way that we draw people's attention to Jesus, we are saving others by snatching them out of the fire. I tried to find, like in the Greek, a way to get around this, uh, but I can't. And it just simply means here, the, words, the word translated here, save others, it means save others. Like save them. And so we're left with no other conclusion. Jude has no problem telling you that you are, did you remember at the beginning? You're beloved and you're kept by God. You're called by God. He did it. You didn't. But on the other hand, now that you are called and beloved by God, go save others. You've been entrusted with a message. Think of it this way. If right now I gave you the, the cure to cancer, what would you do with it? What would you do with the cure to cancer? And what would it say about you if you took that cure to cancer and, cure to cancer and, you, and you hid it? You kept it a secret. How much hate would there have to be in your own heart to keep the cure to cancer a secret? In fact, it would be just a natural response to go, everybody, I have the cure. It's been given to me. Come join me in this awesome gift. So also, friends, you and I have been, God has demonstrated his love and grace to us. Now you know what we get to do? We get to share it. And the analogy holds, how much hate must there be in your heart to keep the good news of Jesus a secret? So we do these things. We keep, we protect, we love, we save. Why? Why can Jude tell us this? And here's the reason why. He can tell us to do all these things because ultimately Jesus has done them for us. Verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Catch, did you catch the, the tension? He's like, keep yourselves. Why? why? Why would we keep ourselves in the love of God? Why? Because Jesus is able to keep us from stumbling. Love others. Show mercy. Why? Why should we do that? Why should we do it? Because Jesus is able to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Friends, we are the people who obediently and ardently contend for the faith. We fight for it because everything in us wants to deny it and everything outside of us wants to rob us of it. And we do so diligently with all of our efforts because we know that God has already demonstrated this for us and accomplished, for it, accomplished it for us on our behalf. And it is easy, this will be radical, it is easy to save others when you know that Jesus has saved them. 
And it's easy to keep yourself in the love of God when you know that God has already kept you. It's oh so much easier to show mercy to others when you recognize the mercy that God has shown to you. Let's pray. God, you are a father. Uh, you are a perfect father. Uh, you, are, you are the kind of father that it, it, you, are the, a, you have the depth of love as a father that's difficult to even communicate or convey. God, I, I, even, I even feel the, the emptiness of my own words to put, uh, to put into thought how good and merciful you are. Uh, you, you boggle the mind. What you do for us and have accomplished for us in Jesus just doesn't fit into words. So I thank you for Jude's encouragement to us to contend for our faith. May we be a group of people that contend for this gospel, that rec we recognize that you have done something for us so much so that now we are so very sensitive and aware of any, any sort of teaching that might undermine or destroy or uproot that in us. Now let us be a people who love the gospel so dearly that anytime something comes along and looks like it might rob us the joy in the gospel, we immediately expose it and, and draw attention to the greater news that you have done this and completed this task on our behalf. So if there's any in this room that, that maybe they don't believe this, they, don't, they can't say with, with a sense of confidence that they trust, that they, they are kept in the love of God, would you even in this moment, would you begin to show them the mercy, the mercy that you show doubters, the mercy you show to scoffers, if there's skeptics in this room and trusting Jesus seems like a, a strange leap of faith, would you begin to right now overwhelm them with a sense of your own presence, a sense of your own care? If right now we're wondering, how on earth can I, how on earth can I be saved? How on earth can I be in the love of God? Would you begin to restore us by reminding us that you're the one who does this for us? You draw us into this. You have completed this for us. God, compel those of in this room who do not believe into trust, into belief, into faith in the finished work of Jesus. That you in some powerful and existential way have borne our suffering. You have taken our place and the sin that we deserve to be punished for, you took on yourself. Now for those of us who know this, for those of us who trust this, for those of us who have been changed by this, would we take this powerful word of good news for the sake of seeing the salvation of many souls. In Jesus' name, amen.